Well, we've been doing a four-part series on the heart of Christianity, and today is the fifth and final part. The fifth part of a four-part series, What Happened? Now, during this series, we've uncovered the heart of Christianity, which is a message called the Gospel. It's a news report. It's uh, good news, great news, the best news. It's news about what Jesus Christ has done. So when you strip back all the paint and take off the varnish and unplug it, Christianity is the news about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and about what that means for you and me. That's the heart of it. Now we've looked at this message, uh, this news, being announced in four different contexts, four different places in the book of Acts. We looked at the first Christian sermon which was preached by Peter in Jerusalem. We've also seen the gospel preached in a synagogue, a Jewish uh, meeting place, and thought about how the gospel relates to religion. We've seen the gospel preached to wild-eyed pagans out in the countryside and thought about how the gospel relates to other beliefs. And we've seen the gospel explained at the heart of civilization, Athens, to philosophers and thought about how the gospel relates to the world of ideas. So we've seen the gospel in action in a number of different contexts. Now, on the 6th of February, 1998, I knelt down on one knee in the duck poo by a river in Stratford and proposed to a woman who thankfully said yes, and now is my wife. And I had in my pocket a diamond ring, the first diamond I ever bought, not the last, (laughs) thanks to her. But that night, Melissa apparently didn't sleep at all because she was turning the diamond in the, in the, the light that was coming through the window and catching the, the way that the light changed colour when you move the diamond. And so this gospel message, this jewel of great price, we've been looking at and seeing how it refracts differently depending on the audience it's being spoken to. Same gospel, but it's coming at different lights coming out. Now last week, at the end of our series... Chris Stevens, he's the one to blame, spoke to me and said how excited he was about Acts chapter 26, especially verse 18. And I realized that he was onto something important and that we needed to look at this together because I think it makes a fantastic end to our four-part series. Because there is one thing we actually haven't done yet and we need to do it today, and that's to describe what living as a Christian is actually like. We've talked a lot about the gospel and brought you to the front door and asked you to come in. But we haven't actually said, once you've trusted Jesus, what's on the other side of the door? So I want to do that today. I want to think about the nature of the Christian life uh, from Acts chapter 26. And most of our time will be in one verse. So if you've got a Bible, it's verse 18. And I want to use this word, conversion. Conversion. Now, I wonder what comes to mind when you hear the word conversion. I went to a meeting last year that was in a converted barn. Someone had converted it for use. Uh, Every night, normally, I sleep in a loft conversion. Somebody converted our loft. You can also talk about conversion as changing beliefs. And somebody in later life was converted to the cause of socialism. So adaptation... Change of beliefs, that's all part of conversion. But you know, there's even more to Christian conversion.
conversion, it is both much more radical and much more ordinary than people think. Much more radical and much more ordinary than people think. Now, the Bible uses a few different words that we translate with conversion. Here here are a few examples. Acts chapter 15, verse 3, says, The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. Bless you. This is the only time this is used. And this word here means change your mind. The Gentiles had changed their minds. A couple of other examples. Romans chapter 16, verse 5. Greet my dear friend Eponetus, which sounds like a medical term, doesn't it? Who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. And another one, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Now, the word used here, underneath that word convert, is first fruits. First fruits. Imagine you're a farmer, you've got a, a, an orchard, maybe an orange grove or something, and you're waiting for your crops, and you've, uh, you've plowed and watered and tended the trees, and you finally get the crop through. Now, the very first of the crop is the first fruits. And the word that's used here is a farming, organic, botanical kind of word. The first, Christ, the first believers in Asia and in Achaia were the first fruits. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as a fruit. Finally, for 1 Timothy chapter 3, the church leader must not be a recent convert. A recent convert, and this word is another organic one. It means... A, newly, a new plant. Or like when a plant's just coming up out of the ground, it would be a, a shoot. You know, if you see a little sapling or a first blade of a daffodil coming up or something. A new plant, a new shoot. A, the church leader must be a new shoot. So when we think conversion, don't think lofts, barns. Think fruits and shoots. Organic, green kind of imagery. Because... That's the language that the Bible uses. And it's really appropriate because conversion is actually about new life. New life. Christian conversion, here's a definition for you, is a change of mind that leads to a whole new life. A change of mind that leads to a whole new life. Now, I told a friend of mine this week that I was going to say this, and she said, whoa, and not in a good way. She said, whoa, that sounds a bit scary. What do you mean a whole new life? And it's a good question. And I'm so glad that she asked it. So the answer is found in verse 18. And I'm going to give two points today. What conversion is and how conversion happens. What conversion is and how conversion happens. What conversion is. Acts 26. Mel's just read it for us. Thank you, Mel. It's a tremendous scene. Paul has been imprisoned for some months, and this is his fifth defence that is recorded for us. It's the longest of them. It takes up this whole chapter, and it's the most important audience. Because he's speaking in front of a king, a king in the, in the Herod dynasty. The king, Agrippa, and his sister, Bernice, have entered the room with great pomp and ceremony. And then, after them, the governor, the Roman governor, Festus, Uncle Festus has processed in, probably wearing a scarlet robe, 
which a governor got to wear on state occasions. And then following Festus were the high-ranking military officers. And then all the leading men of the city, the mayor, the aldermen, whatever they are. And when all of these have come in, probably very slowly and with great gravity, and sat down, and everyone's been given a moment to take in the sort of sense of occasion, a little prisoner is brought in after them in chains. And his name is Paul. Now, according to an early Christian tradition, Paul was short, had shaggy projecting eyebrows, he was going bald, he had a hooked nose and bandy legs. He wasn't the most impressive looking character, even at the best of times. And this was not the best of times. He'd been in prison for months. And now he's being brought in, in front of this group of people, in chains, to defend himself. I mean, what a scene. But God had promised to preserve Paul and to give him words to say when he was brought before rulers and authorities. And if ever there was need for those words, it's this time, in front of the king. And what follows is the most terrific speech that I've ever read. As the prisoner, Paul, defends his life and his ministry. He tells about his early childhood and his growing up and how he hated Christians. He persecuted them. In fact, he even signed their death warrant and hounded them down from place to place, getting them whipped. And he tells of how he encountered Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, physically met Paul on the road to a city called Damascus. And he tells how Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul tells how he fell to his face in the dust. He was blinded by the light of Jesus' presence. It says that it was brighter than the sun. Now, in the Bible, that can really only mean one thing. When God appears in the Bible, it's usually described in terms of brightness, fire, and brilliance. And this Jesus, who appears to Paul, has that kind of brightness coming out of him. He's both a man, physically raised from death, with a new body, but he's also God, speaking. And he commissions this Paul with the same language that God used to commission his servants, the prophets, in the Old Testament. Stand up, get up, and go, I am sending you. And Jesus gave Paul a new commission to be a servant and a witness. And Jesus says, why he's sending Paul to his own people and to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And here it is. This, we're going to spend most of our time in this one verse. It's a beautiful description of Christian conversion. Jesus says, I'm sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There it is. In a single verse, the whole of Christian experience, the whole of conversion is, is encapsulated. And I want to just unpack three words there. You can see them. They're the words in red. Open, turn, and receive. Open, turn, and receive. That's the, that's the, the essence of what it means to, to be converted, to be changed. Firstly, our eyes are to be open. Now, people sometimes worry that if I became a Christian, I, to do that, I'd have to switch off my brain. 
It's like a, a leap into the dark. Now, on one level, I could just encourage you to talk to a few people at this church. Over a quarter of the people at this church have got a PhD or a master's degree. Some of them have got more letters after their name than in their name. They're no use at all if you want to do something practical, like get, get a room painted or change a light bulb. But they could not lightly be accused of switching off their brains. But actually, you know, it goes deeper than just counting up tertiary education. It goes deeper than that. The very nature of Christianity is described here as an enlightenment. It's an opening of the eyes. Paul is commissioned to open people's eyes by his preaching. And that's very striking. The European enlightenment of the late 17th and the 18th centuries emphasised reason over tradition. And the Christian gospel invites us to use reason too. Whatever your traditions, whatever you're brought up believing, whether you're brought up atheist or agnostic or in some other worldview system, the gospel asks you to think again, to think. Not to park your brain, close your eyes, think of England and have a religious experience, but to embrace a wider rationality. Let me give you a couple of real-life examples of this. They're both taken from a book called Reasons of the Heart by a scholar, William Edgar. Sashi is a Japanese-American musician whose career was planned from a very early age when it was recognised how much talent she had. Growing up, she didn't have much time to think about spiritual things. And in the midst of her professional music career, when she wasn't practicing or performing, she'd be busy managing her life. She was particularly gifted, and she enjoyed an unusual attainment in her field. But in mid-career, Sashi began to have a strange, recurring experience that was so powerful that she was driven to change her routines and carve out some space to study the Bible for the first time in her life. This is what happened, and according to William Edgar, it's something that many musicians encounter. As she was performing certain pieces, she began to feel a kind of aesthetic surprise. Although she knew her repertoire very thoroughly, every now and then a sense of ecstasy would take over. Something wonderful, something inexplicable was happening. She began to feel a kind of astonishment. Now this strange feeling of amazement caused her to carve out the time to try and understand what was happening. And she began a pilgrimage that led towards Jesus, led towards discovering spiritual truth. See, she had found the shock of another world intruding into her world. She was awakened to discover a bigger reality. Her eyes were opened. Has that happened to you? The second example is, is a bit older. It's the writer G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was exploring different approaches to life. He was reading philosophy and thinking things through. And he found himself wrestling with this funny thing. He had a sense of gratitude for being alive. He couldn't explain it. Now, he could explain the enjoyment of a particular thing, like a good meal or a good book, but he couldn't explain the enjoyment of enjoyment. He found himself delighted with life, grateful, driven to thank someone, 
And it led him to the conclusion that there must be someone to thank. Soon after this insight, Chesterton began to believe in Jesus. Now, you may not be a musician or a writer, but haven't you experienced moments of great wonder? Times when you were almost overwhelmed with a sense of beauty or greatness or majesty. It might have been a sunset. It might have been a particularly stirring piece of music. How do you explain it? It's the problem of goodness. Reality is much bigger and much greater than we previously imagined. And if you let it, that trail will lead to your eyes being opened to a bigger view of life, lead you to Jesus Christ. Have your eyes been opened? Are they opening now? Conversion is an opening of the eyes. The second thing at conversion is, is turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Turning. Now, in some ways, turning from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God are kind of two different ways of describing the same thing. It's talking about moral choices. The Bible's uh, diagnosis of your heart and my heart is not flattering. It says that our nature is corrupted. It says that we are not spiritually unformed and naive. We are spiritually deformed and twisted. It says that by nature we are blind to the things of God. We live in the dark, spiritually speaking, and we don't want God. We are wired to resent him. We're hostile to him. We're actually allergic to God. So God needs to change us before we will seek him. Now the Bible also talks about a spiritual dimension of spiritual realm, if you like, that is beyond what we can touch and taste and see and feel and experiment on. God himself is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. And there are other spirits too, created by God. And one of these is the arch enemy of God, who is known as Satan or the accuser. The whole world is under the authority of this evil, personal being who operates through lies. Satan's chief strategy is to mislead people into believing lies about themselves and lies about God. Now, in human cultures, Satan usually goes one of two ways. He either gets people to believe that he doesn't exist, as in modern Western cultures, or he gets people to believe that he is all-powerful, as in traditional folk cultures. Now, both of those positions are false. But if you live in a certain culture, it will be very hard for you to think outside of the box. It will seem totally natural to you to believe either that Satan couldn't possibly exist or that Satan and the spirits are really all-powerful. It just seems plausible. Scholars who work in the sociology of knowledge point out that most people believe things simply because the majority of their culture around them believe it. That's what makes it plausible. So if you have trouble believing that there could be a devil, let me ask why. Is it because you have good reasons to doubt the Bible or because your beliefs are based on majority opinion? And... Let me just throw this in. Can your beliefs account for the depth of wickedness and evil in the world? Now here's the second dimension of conversion. It's turning. Reorienting, reorientating life. It means a personal revolution, a change of mind, change of attitude. It means that your life gets turned from darkness to light. Now, 
I know that's pretty vague and abstract at the moment, so I really want to drill into it. The main lie that, the, that Satan tells us is that we are at the center of everything. That we're the center of the world and the whole world should revolve around us. So turning from the power of Satan to God means turning from believing that you are the center of the universe to believing that God is the center of the universe and your life should revolve around him. And that changes everything. Two examples. And the first one, I think you will see how Christianity is at its most radical and its most ordinary. It's a personal example. I won't use the name. There's a woman I know. I've known her for 15 years. When I first met her, she was not remotely interested in Christianity. In fact, she was so um, hostile towards the, the Bible that if somebody brought it up in conversation... She would literally walk out of the room. And I experienced this on a number of occasions. Someone started talking about Jesus or church or something from the Bible. She literally walked out. Now that is a bit awkward. What happened? 15 years on, very, very slowly, very gradually, she has journeyed to faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't overnight. She didn't see a blinding light or hear any voices. She met lots of different Christians, talked to them, saw something different about them, started reading the Bible bit by bit, very, very tentatively going to church, went on a Christianity Explored course, and very, very gradually, very slowly, with faltering steps, she has found Jesus Christ. Or perhaps I should say, he has found her. Now, this is what her daughter said yesterday. This daughter is not a Christian. She's seen the change in her mum's life, and she said it is amazing. Her mum has always been loving, but now her love extends way beyond the family circle to others, especially to people who are in need, lonely, poor, or the elderly. She's always been kind, but now she's become much, much more forgiving. And gracious and ready to see things from another person's point of view. And not just to insist that she's right all the time. She's become much more tolerant. And the other word that was used uh, in a very positive way, in many ways she's softer. She's changed. Now let me point out, from an external point of view, this woman's life is exactly the same. She's still living in the same house. Married to the same man, drives the same car, does the same job, wears the same clothes, goes to the same hairdresser. So it's very ordinary. But the internal change is so profound that a non-Christian daughter is seeing it and shaking her head and wondering how that happened. You see, you see what it's like when somebody turns from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God? You see how radical and yet how ordinary Christian conversion is? This second example is a bit older. Mark McCann was born sometime in the late 19th century. He was a Welshman who had been a miner. But his chief interest in life was not work. It was fighting. In the 1920s and 30s, he he would travel from one fair, fairground to the next in Wales so that he could have a few drinks and get into a fight. That's what he lived for. And he was a tremendous fighter, by all accounts. He was fit, 
wiry, and he had long arms, so he could usually outreach his opponent. But most of all, he had a furious temper. Once it kicked off, he was virtually insane. It wasn't enough for him to knock out his adversary and knock him down. He would leap on top of him, shake him, and batter his head on the ground. They had to pull him off. On one occasion, McCann came home and found his dinner on a plate on the table. He went into the kitchen to wash his hands, and when he came back, he found the family dog was eating his dinner. So he took the dog out of the kitchen sink and cut its head off with a bread knife. There's a man with a temper. Now somehow, a friend took him along to a church meeting. He heard a preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones speaking about the gospel. And Mark McCann heard it for the first time. And he turned from darkness to light. He turned from the power of Satan to God. And the preacher gave an invitation. He actually asked people to stand up if they wanted to receive Jesus. And he did. And from that moment, an eyewitness said, he showed himself to be a changed man, unfailingly faithful, truly born again. Now, somebody who knew him said that his temper was still a problem, but his success in dealing with it was little short of heroic. Now, that's radical. It's changed life. It's a conversion from living for self to living for Jesus Christ. And it's more about what's happening on the inside than about what's going on on the outside. It's a turning, turning of yourself inside, opening the eyes Turning from darkness to light, the third dimension is that you receive. You receive. Here's that verse again. Chapter 26, verse 18. It says, um, So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You get two things as a result of being converted. Forgiveness and a place. Now, I have to say that the first one of these is a bit intangible. Forgiveness. You can't see it, you can't bottle it, you can't buy it. How do you know you're forgiven? The good news of of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is that at the cross, Jesus Christ was dying on your behalf. All of your wickedness, all of your selfishness, all of your self-centered decisions... The whole way of life that you had that was full of pride and lust and arrogance and hatred. All of that was being crucified with Jesus. Jesus took in himself the penalty that was due to my sins. And he paid it all. He cancelled our debts. He washed away all our impurity. He took our shame and he gave us his honour. He took our disgrace and gave us his high status. Jesus welcomed us into the family of God with open arms at the cross. Now, I know that's quite intangible. You can't really see forgiveness. A lot of people don't really experience much either, but some do. Some have a wonderful sense of sins and burdens being rolled away and a sense of guilt lifting and a new start. But not everyone. Forgiveness is, in a way, invisible. But there is something very tangible, and it's the second thing we receive at conversion. It's a place. It's a place among God's people. That means we don't just get a new life. We get a new community. We get a new family. We get a new home. And these two things always go together. 
The new life in Jesus and the new community of Jesus. So Christian conversion is a transfer. It's a move from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And it's a move into a new community. Community we sometimes call the church. Jesus promised that wherever two or three people gathered in his name, there he would be with them. So conversion is about joining up with God's people, becoming part of that family. And that's where we grow. So, this is why, those of you who've been around for more than a few weeks, will know that we place a lot of emphasis here at this church on community groups. Not because we've read a book and we just decided to adopt a certain model of church and just try and impose it on everyone, but because we believe that we've received a place among God's people. And that's where we belong. With his people. So that's what conversion is. You have your eyes opened, you turn from darkness to light, and you receive forgiveness and a place with God's people. So let me ask... Has it happened to you? Has it happened to you? There are several different reactions in the chapter that Mel read earlier. One of the people was a governor, an important man, who actually was so offended by what he heard that he shouted out and interrupted and said, You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane, Paul. That's one, one reaction. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead... You know, you must be bonkers. The other person is a bit more subtle about it. He's the king, King Agrippa. And he says, do you really think you can persuade me to be a Christian so quickly? And he just tries to sidestep it. And Paul says, I wish every single one of you here were like me, except for these chains. Let me ask, invite you today not to be like Festus, who just shouts out, you're crazy. And not to be like Agrippa, who says, uh, don't you think you can persuade me that quickly? But to be like Paul, the former persecutor, now turned preacher. The one who hated Christians, who now will give his life to serve Jesus. Let me ask you to, to be like that. If you've sensed that your eyes are being opened, if you've felt a pull towards the light, if you know that you, want, you need to be forgiven, you... you like to have a place in God's people you, 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 maybe you've been around and you sense the warmth here in this church where does it come from let me tell you the fire that we're all warmed by is this gospel what conversion is finally and very quickly how conversion happens and here it is in this verse Paul says in verse 20 I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's all it is. You're converted by turning to God, asking him to forgive you, and then living like that. We sometimes think about becoming a Christian or being converted as a one-off thing. It's daily. We don't repent once and then go on and do something different. We repent all the time. It's the way we grow. We demonstrate that we really have repented by living a changed life. That's how conversion happens. So, that's the end of our four-part series. I hope you've enjoyed it. And let me offer that invitation once again. If anybody 
has been thinking these things through and you now feel, yes, I do want to join God's people. My eyes have been opened. I've turned. I want to turn. Then do come and talk to us afterward. It would be great to, to talk more and to pray with you about these things. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Father, we thank you for this wonderful message, the gospel. We thank you for the wonderful saviour that it tells us of. Full atonement can it be for those as vile as we. We thank you. Hallelujah. What a saviour. And so we pray now for those here who are on the fence or looking over, looking through the window, peering in, thinking things through. We do ask, Lord Jesus, send your spirit and bring them home. Amen.